The Athletic. After almost eight years of waiting, Arsenal finally have a win over Manchester City. But what did we learn from the meeting of the champions and challengers? Has Arsenal's summer spending delivered on taking them to the next level? And can Mikel Arteta's side sustain this season's bid for a first title since 2004? I'm Ayo Akimolare. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. For this one, we have the Athletics Arsenal writer James McNicholas and also Adam Crafton is with us as well. Right, let's get into this. Arsenal beat Manchester City 1-0. First time Arsenal have beaten Manchester City since 2015. 15 games they've gone um, and haven't beaten City. The last time Arsenal beat Manchester City, Arsene Wenger was still managing the club. Barack Obama was still president of the United States. The iPhone 6 had just dropped as Apple's flagship phone. James... This was a significant victory for the Gunners, wasn't it? Yeah, and I was still covering Arsenal back then, so I've been waiting a long time for one of these results. It is a significant victory. Uh, I think it's very significant for Mikel Arteta, I think, above all else, because he kept coming up against Pep Guardiola in these duels. There was all that talk of master and apprentice, the rivalry between them, the chess match. And I think sooner or later, he needed to land one of these blows in the league. He'd beaten City in the FA Cup in his first season in charge. Obviously, they won the Community Shield not too long ago, but that was a draw, settled on penalties. I think a Premier League game is going to be much more meaningful to him, to the fans, to the players. It could be something that they can really take a lot of belief from because last season, ultimately, the league was decided by those games against City. Had Arsenal won those, they would have been champions. To have taken three points rather than lost three points on this occasion is a big step forward. And I thought the maturity, more generally, that Arsenal showed in their performance will be what really is encouraging for for fans and for the manager. Yeah, I mean, we were talking uh, last week, it was a couple of weeks ago now, and uh, the difference uh, Rodri makes to Manchester City. And let's just talk about City very briefly on this one. They haven't won the last three matches uh, that Rodri's been suspended from. And talk to you on this one, Adam. Is it as simple as saying it was it was Rodri that was the difference in this match? Uh, or was it just not the right day for City? I mean, it was such a, a fine... as. As we've just said, it was just such fine margins in this game. To be honest, I mean, as a neutral, I thought both teams were pretty poor relative to how good they can be in the way that kind of City lost it with what was quite, you know, it was an unlucky deflection, quite a soft goal to concede. If that had happened at the other end, we'd probably be having exactly the same conversation about City that we're now having about Arsenal, you know, mature display, kept it tight. Or I don't think Arsenal did anything in the game that City didn't do for example. With Rodri, I didn't think Rodri was really a problem yesterday from a defensive point of view. You know, Erdegaard was as quiet as I can remember him in one of those, you know, one of these big games. Uh, didn't really have any chances. Where it probably was a problem was that it meant Bernardo Silva had to play deeper and then maybe you lose him higher up the pitch in some way. So I suppose from that side of it, just in terms of the cogs they were having to move around. I actually thought yesterday they missed De Bruyne more than Rodri, that player that can just just pick that pass, that can just grip a game from a creative point of view. I thought City, the last 25 minutes, I thought they had that period after half-time 
where it looked like they were starting to really grip the game and Arsenal were struggling to get the ball maybe from sort of what 55 to 65 minutes. And you think as an Arsenal fan, oh, this could be a long half hour to just sort of get through it. And then actually the, the substitutions happened for City and I thought they got worse and Arsenal kind of became a bit more dominant again. But I just felt the last 15 minutes, both teams were playing for a draw and the goal almost happened by accident. Like, no one was really trying to score. So, you know, I think from Arsenal's point of view, great result. In the same way as the Manchester United game that they won, that could easily have gone the other way if the Garnacho goal goes the other way and we have very different conversations about Arsenal. But it can't be a coincidence now that Arsenal keep finding a way to get these results, right? We've criticised them for long enough for, you know, maybe playing well and not getting results. So if they're not playing so well and they're still finding a way to win games, and that that has to be a good thing. I think Adam's right in that neither team were at their best from an attacking point of view. I think both teams worked very hard to make that the case, though, particularly Arsenal. You know, and, and previously, I don't think they would have been able to contain City for as long as they did and limit them to the number of opportunities that they did. Haaland didn't have a shot in the game. It's not too often that you can say that of him. Uh, I think big credit has to go to Saliba and Gabriel, who, in fairness, when they have been played as a partnership against Haaland, have tended to fare pretty well. Arsenal, of course, lost Saliba towards the end of last season and it cost them very, very dearly. The substitutions was an interesting moment. I mean, I do feel like this was a game of kind of risk management from both managers. Neither manager wanted to lose this. I concur that they both would have been quite content with a draw. I think the context is critical to sort of understanding the game. You know, last season, these games were both played in the latter part of the season with the the context of a title race, City needing to win. None of that really exists at this point in time. I think a point would have been very uh, agreeable to both managers. I think they absolutely would have taken it. And the game ultimately was about, you know, who was going to push that bit further? Who was going to take a risk? I'd say neither team really went for it at any point. But the introduction of Gabriel Martinelli did prove critical. He is somebody who, in this sort of very organised, positional play, does have that chaotic element to his game. And I think he took the most shots in the match of anybody. He only came on at halftime. And just that willingness to have a crack in a situation where, you know, it didn't necessarily look particularly on, has ultimately proved the difference. It's an unlucky ricochet from a City perspective, but Martinelli gets in those positions and he does make things happen. And that's what broke the game open and what won it for Arsenal ultimately. But I've described it elsewhere as an arm wrestle, really, for the first 85 minutes, where it just felt like neither side really wanted to concede anything. And in the end, settled by the finest, finest of margins. But Mikel Arteta will look at it, look at his start to the season. Six wins from eight, big wins over United and City. They are fine margins, but as an overall pitcher, it looks pretty healthy for Arsenal right now. Football is bigger and more complicated than ever before. Just ask VAR. Check up, Blake. It's fine. Perfect. So the Daily Football Briefing is here to help, whether it's the World Cup. It's a kind of face-saving, everyone's happy, no one's a loser. Lionel Messi. As they say, he completed football. Or Manchester United. I mean, the performances all season have been questionable. That are making you quizzical. The Daily Football Briefing has all the answers you need for every football story that matters. And it does exactly what the name suggests. It's daily, it's brief, and it's all about football. The Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic, available wherever you get your podcasts.
You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akinwalere. I feel like Declan was that player to bring Arsenal to that next level. You know, he's in an Arsenal team that are winning, in an Arsenal team that are young and hungry and want to chase Man City. Um, and they want to be that elite team, and they are, they are, they generally are. When you beat Man City, you can be on par with them. Arsenal are the second highest spenders behind Chelsea in terms of net spend with over, what, £200 million um, on players this summer. Could this be an early indication, really, uh, of that investment paying off? You know, um, Theo Walcott just spoke about, you know, Declan Rice and how much of an impact he's had at Arsenal. James, let's start with you. Declan Rice, was he the difference yesterday for Arsenal compared to last season? I think he has made a difference. Uh, I'm not sure I'd say necessarily that he was the difference yesterday. I think it was a much more collective effort than that. But what he's brought to Arsenal is outstanding defensive ability. I think Arsenal have improved pretty significantly out of possession this season. I think spending £100 million on a player like Declan Rice tells you that's a focus for Mikel Arteta. And this is not to underplay his quality on the ball. He's shown you know, good technique, good passing range. Uh, he can drive with the ball, he can dribble. But what he does when he's without it, Arsenal never really have had for a long time now someone with that kind of physical capacity, the defensive awareness, the positional skill, and then the sprinting power, the tackling, uh, the heading ability. He just brings another dimension to Arsenal's play in that respect. And, you know, it's an awful lot of money they spent on him, but it is sort of seems to be the case that that's becoming the going rate for a top Premier League central midfielder. So Arsenal won't be feeling too bad about that when they look at some of the other fees around in the market. And I think it was telling that, you know, yesterday there was a lot of subs made. Subs were an important part of the game. But in the 92nd, 93rd minute, Declan Rice is still going box to box, getting up and down the pitch. You know, these are... 90-minute games where every second matters and he seems to be able physically to contribute across every single one of those. Let's talk about Kai Havertz, Adam. Do we see how Kai Havertz might be fitting into this Arsenal squad, you know, a goal and an assist in the last two matches in in, in the Premier League in the same way that perhaps Mason Mount is starting to maybe find his feet at Manchester United as well? Uh, I was at Old Trafford on Saturday and I, I, d- I didn't see a player finding their feet, unfortunately, for Mason Mount. Um, I think for Havertz, Arteta seems to have this idea of what his role should be, right? This kind of number eight position. But Clee didn't trust him enough yesterday to be starting in that role. So I think that tells you it's not been an ideal start to life at Arsenal. And yesterday, you know, it was... It was a layoff. I mean, yeah, it was it, it was a game changing moment, but it wasn't. You know, it wasn't like he's picked the ball up in midfield from the number eight position and driven past two players or made a run from deep. You know, it was it was a nice piece of play. I, I, I don't think you can necessarily make big conclusions. I think what it is though for Arsenal, I think this is what we're seeing from Arsenal a bit more is whereas last season when they had to turn to the bench and you're looking at who's coming off the bench and it's a bit like, well. Not sure what we're going to really get from this. Actually, now you, you know you start the game yesterday with you know some of the backup players playing. You know players like Jorginho and Trossard and and Ketia, but then you can still bring off the bench Havertz and Martinelli and Tomiyasu and you know these are good players. These are good. This is good depth now that Arsenal have in the way Man City have kind of sixteen brilliant players. But not much beyond, not much really beyond that. I think Arsenal squad maybe a little bit bigger, but not quite that sensational quality. But there is very few players coming off the Arsenal bench now where you think, I'm worried about that. 
I think that puts Arsenal in a really good position, particularly in these big games where you've got, you know, Pep's making three subs on the hour mark. Was was it? And you've got to you've got to respond to that. You've got five subs to play with. So for for Arsenal not to be bringing players on where you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure that he's up to this. I, I think is significant. I don't know if that reflected in the stadium, James, when these players are coming onto the pitch. Well, it's interesting. You know, there was a lot of anxiety among the fans when the initial team lineup was announced because a lot of supporters expected Bukayo Saka to be in there. Invariably, if he's even half fit, he is. Martinelli had only made it back as far as the bench. The same goes for Thomas Partey. And I think people were looking at players like Jorginho, Trossard and Ketia not being regular starters and thinking, will we suffer for that against Man City? But I think the introduction of the five subs rule has kind of changed the dynamic of these Premier League games where actually having more senior or, or, or top players coming off your bench can be critically important and you need to be able to counter whatever the opposition do in those final stages as well. Arsenal did that very clearly, for example, by bringing Tommy Asu on for Zinchenko. And Mikel Arteta, I mean, it's a manager's dream, really. A Thomas Partey long ball, a Tommy Asu knockdown, a Havertz layoff and a Gabriel Martinelli finish. Four substitutes combining for Arsenal's winning goal. So uh, in that respect, I think it's an illustration of the kind of depth that is in the squad now. So it was planned. It was a completely planned training ground move. <laughs> Arteta ball, they're calling it now, apparently. Uh, but uh, James, <laughs> what, what from your perspective, uh, and, and I, I want to talk about Havertz just a little bit because it's a, play, a player still looking to find his feet at the club. How do you deem his start to his Arsenal career? You know, it's always tricky assessing these players in the early stages of a career. Not their career, but their time with the club, especially when there's a big kind of reaction to it. So I think with Havers, the discourse has been sort of a bit undulating in that there was a lot of negativity about the signing when it was first mooted and, and when it went through, especially at the fee concern. A lot of fans weren't really happy with the deal. They got a few scars from signing players from Chelsea in the past. But then there's kind of a backlash to the backlash where I think players become analysed maybe a bit too kindly at times. You know, people are looking for the positives because, you know, they want to rally around a player who maybe is in danger of being kind of ostracised by the media or, or by the support base. Obviously, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think Havertz has been absolutely fine at Arsenal, but no better than that. What I'm really intrigued to see is... Does Arteta persist with this idea of playing him in midfield? You know, he, he signed him ostensibly to be this left eight, you know, replacing Granit Xhaka in that role. I have to say, I, I'm not sure I see it personally. Does he have the physicality? I mean... Well, actually, <laughs> my impression watching him is, is yes. The physical side, the defensive side, I've actually been quite impressed with him. He's put himself about, he's gone into challenges, he's regained possession, he's pressed... But I'm not convinced that his ability with the ball of his feet is at his best with the game in front of him in that way. He, he looks to me often, from a technical perspective, like a forward playing in midfield. And actually, on the occasions where Arsenal have kind of put him up top, I think he's looked a bit more comfortable. I think that layoff that he produced from Martinelli, you know, it, it, as Adam says, it's not a, a particularly outstanding moment, but at least it looks natural and in his body. There are lots of people who disagree with you. You know, I know lots of Chelsea fans who say, trust me, we watched him as a striker. He's not a striker. Liam Toomey, our, our Chelsea correspondent Athletic, will make that case pretty ardently. I think he's got a use to Arsenal there because if you look at their other options, Jesus and Ketia, he's a different body type. He's a different sort of player. He gives them an alternative. And, and I'd like to see more of him there, actually, moving forward. But if, you, if everyone's fit, 
where where do you put him then? Because it's Saka, Jesus, and Martinelli, isn't it? It's yeah, fir- that would be your first. An, choice. An, an guard is always going to be the furthest forward of the midfielders. So is he a, is he a sixty eight million pound impact sub? I mean, I don't pick the team, but I think. So I'm just trying mid- to get a clip for social media. Just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me put it like this: I think the the central midfield three that Arsenal finished the game with yesterday, I think, is the best they can pick which is Thomas Partey at the base, Martin Odegaard and Declan Rice. I think in the big games, it's difficult to look beyond that. And then you're right, in the forward areas, you probably wouldn't have Havertz in your first selection. But we're coming off the back of a, a big game against Man City where Leandro Trossard and Eddie Nketiah played. You know, there's going to be games for everyone. And I think Arsenal are trying to move away from that idea of like a very clear first eleven, because actually... That's what they had last season. And when they lost one or two from it, things unraveled a bit. That's what I was sort of working to is that it, it does six or five million pounds not just buy you a, a squad player in this current climate, Adam? Maybe, maybe. I mean, it, it, which is kind of, which might be okay if you are, well, it's not even okay if you're Manchester City because Man City, to be fair, have had to sell quite a lot of players over the last few years in order to to balance the books at certain times. It's not a problem in itself. It's a problem if Arsenal feel that they need players in other positions, right? You know, I think there's still a lot of people that watch Arsenal. I know this was the the whole discussion, which I felt was a bit over the top after the Tottenham draw. This whole, you know, they'd scored two goals and everyone was like, they need a striker, which I found a little bit strange. But like, there are times you watch Arsenal and think someone like a Haaland would obviously be useful. But I think a player that you can really play off as a different option, I think would clearly be very useful. So I don't think it's necessarily an issue with Havertz itself. It's more an issue of if Arsenal had 68 million quid to spend this summer, was that the most useful way to improve their chances across four competitions? I think that's a far fairer way to frame it. Equally, look, I mean, you know, where are Arsenal after, what, eight games? Exactly where I think they would they would really like to be, unbeaten in the Premier League doing okay in the Champions League. I'm sure they'll be fine in that group. So I, I, I see nothing for Arsenal to worry about. They've just beaten the treble winners. In that vein, then you can say, look, you know, similar points tally to last season, particularly this stage of the season. Yeah, but they, um, but they won't, they won't, they're not they, looking... they won't do what they did between now and sort of February, March, like they did last season. I, I'll come back on this podcast if I'm wrong, but I don't <laughs> think they're going to end up in in a position where they are so consistent and so dominant in the league when they're, when, you know, when they're now in the Champions League as well. I think that was a pretty freak situation. I think if Arsenal are to win this league, I think it will have to be a more, a more ordinary season in which teams around each other lose drop points as, as is normal, right? That's not a, an unfair expectation to have a situation where, you know, maybe 90 points does it rather than kind of those sort of really scary figures that it looks like City might do after six games. James, is it worth reading reading anything into how Arsenal have started this season in comparison to last season? Because you you got a feeling that they were sort of punching above their weight last season. Similar points, Tally, but some might say the football hasn't been as attractive. I think last season for Arsenal almost has to be regarded in two distinct parts. You know, they did have that extraordinary run, which propelled them to the top of the table, put the title in their grasp, ultimately. And then at the end of the season, they had a pretty substantial run, nine games or so, of pretty poor form. Uh, You know, having played like the best side in the country in terms of results for the first three quarters of the season, they finished it distinctly average. And I think 
it, it's conceivable to me that they might get a similar set of results this season, but just the spread will be a bit different. Um, I think that's what you would expect to be a bit more normal. In terms of like, you know, what does this result mean in the context of the season? I, I just think it's far too early to say. I think eight games, it, it's still not really enough to talk in any concrete terms about titles and, you know, challenges and and, ha- and where we might end up. You know, if Arsenal have learned anything from last season, it will be that you don't want to engage in that talk too early. I think it's more the kind of psychological boost of finally getting one over City. I think, honestly, that at the moment, that's the main thing that the club are going to take away from it, rather than positioning in a title race. I just want to come back to you, Adam, as well on you know spending. Um, and I know he's a, a loan signing for the time being anyway. Uh, David Raya, some might say, didn't start the game yesterday in the best way seemed a bit nervous in, Ga- in Gary Neville's words I think he said harsher things than that actually uh, in commentary oh, I can spot a keeper a mile off it's a nervous wreck and there is one right in front of you he's not got a picture at all he's not sharp enough and he's very lucky is that a position Arsenal needed to fill or need competition in from your perspective I, mean, I was nervous watching it I always find it really funny watching a a, a, com- a goalkeeper that's clearly lacking a bit of confidence because it is, it's very discomforting to watch, particularly when they're being asked to play out in the way that, that Raya is. You know, every time he got the ball in the first half, as a neutral, it's quite intoxicating. You're, you, you, I was almost there what, hoping the ball kept, because nothing else was happening in the game. You're almost like, well, give it to him, something might happen, not in a very sort of pleasant way. I think Arteta's kind of created a drama where there wasn't necessarily one, right? I thought Ramsdale was broadly fine. Raya clearly has significant potential. From what I have seen of Raya, now that's not, that may not be, that's clearly not as broad as what Arsenal's goalkeeping coach in Akikanya, who worked for a long time with, with Raya at Brentford, for example, has seen far more of him than me. I don't see him a bit as being of such a game-changing level that it's necessarily worth the drama that that's kind of being created around this, but given you know, given how much Arteta has got right since he's come into Arsenal, I do think he probably deserves the benefit of the doubt. So, although I would say I've not necessarily seen the evidence for it as yet, I think there is value in you know trusting the judgment of the people that keep making quite good decisions for the football club. I was in the North Bank behind that goal, and I think it's. It's sort of why this kind of two goalkeeper situation, so many people have spoken about it and said that it's very difficult to manage. And I think that that context played into the way that the crowd were reacting to David Raya yesterday. You know, Aaron Ramsdale, he's very loved by the Arsenal fans and they know he sat on the bench over there. And I think every hesitation or slight mistake Raya makes is going to be viewed through that prism. I think that is kind of the problem that Arteta has created himself a sort of mini soap opera within the season. What I would say, though, is that, you know, actions tell us everything. And Arteta brought Raya in pretty swiftly. He stuck with him despite some errors. He made an error against uh, Lance in the Champions League, arguably against Spurs, potentially two. And not only has he stuck by him, he's been very emphatic in his praise of David Raya. All my fault. They can boo me because I ask him to do that. And especially against this team, you start to do all the things and you get in big, big, big trouble. And uh, I think he was excellent. I think the way he dominated his box, uh, the way he came up for crosses and set pieces, the height that he played, 
He's got big ones because with the crowd going like this, other players, I've seen it, start to kick balls everywhere. And I said to him, you don't do that, make sure you don't do it. And he didn't do it. And at the end, he got rewarded because the team started to play much better the game that we wanted to play. So big compliment to him. And actually, what's interesting when we talk about Ryan and Ramsdale, you know, the discourse among Arsenal fans, it's all been about feet. It's all been about feet. What do they do with their feet? How do they pass the ball? And actually, I think that's quite telling about the way Arsenal have played this season. They have been much more secure and fundamentally hugely minimised the amount of shots on their goal. And frankly, I think maybe Arteta feels that Raya's willingness to play short to keep the ball in possession is again part of that, just kind of suppressing shots from the opposition as far as possible. That appears to be the end game and, and the big emphasis for Arsenal at this point in time. If Arteta thinks Raya's going to help him do that, then it seems he's going to keep selecting him. Let's talk about the relationship with KSE, you know, the cronky takeover from Arsenal. And, uh, you know, since 2019, only Chelsea and Manchester United have a higher net spend than Arsenal. Each in the last three seasons, which have resulted in, what, 100 million plus investment um, in last three seasons in the transfer window. Is their investment paying dividends, James? And do they now deserve to start to see the results on the pitch? Very different feeling with Josh at the helm than Stan. Is it time these investments are now, we are we are beginning to see that the plan come into play? I think that the, the investments have already borne some fruit in, in that Arsenal are back in the Champions League, which is of critical importance to them and is obviously hugely competitive in the Premier League to, to achieve that qualification, or certainly has been uh, when it's been four teams qualifying. It looks like it obviously may increase moving forward. I think silverware is clearly the next step. Mikel Arteta won the FA Cup in his first season with a very different Arsenal team in a very different context. If you look at KSC's other uh, sporting enterprises, they have won things across many of them of late. Obviously, you know, football is, is kind of the remaining one. They'd love to add a Premier League to that. And I think it's really interesting to observe how Arsenal fans attitudes towards their owners have evolved. Uh, it's not too long ago that with the Super League, we saw huge protests, you know, cronky out banners absolutely everywhere. But we're now five years on from 
KSC taking 100% ownership of the club, the end of the kind of Cold War that existed in the boardroom between uh, Stan Kroenke and Alisher Osmanov, which I think was actually a pretty poisonous time for Arsenal and, and it encumbered their progress significantly. I think since they've had 100% ownership, there can't be too many complaints uh, from Arsenal fans about their stewardship of the club. Some appointments have been better than others, you know, in terms of, Think of uh, Rousseau's time as head of football. Certainly, that didn't go as Arsenal fans would have hoped, but they seem to have learnt from that. They seem to have entrusted the right people uh, with some of the keys to the club now. And I think what's really telling and really interesting is I think the current leadership group, particularly Mikel Arteta, have fostered a, a positive relationship with Josh Kroenke and KSC more broadly. I think one of Arteta's real skills is managing up. I think that he has uh, a capacity to kind of work on the owners and get them to do things that maybe other managers weren't necessarily able to do. So I think that's one of the most intriguing aspects of his time at Arsenal. You know, I think the degree to which he's brought the owners on board and sort of achieved their buy-in, I think he personally has been quite a big part of that, Um, as has Tim Lewis, who came in as a kind of link man really between the club and KSC, a long trusted uh, sort of friend and associate of Stan Kroenke's. So it's been a really interesting time. I think if you'd done a poll of Arsenal fans in 2020, what they thought of KSC, uh, the results would have been emphatically negative. I think now they would be dramatically different. And if they can add that silverware, it will really, really, really cement the change in perception of Arsenal's owners. It's very unusual actually, in the Premier League to have an ownership that has changed opinions. I can't think of really very many others that started, I suppose, as negatively as KSC in terms of just what the perception was, as you say, maybe Super League being the high point of that. Obviously, you had the period with, you know, there's all the stuff, you know, silent stand and uh, not communicating with supporters. And, and clearly all of this all of this becomes a lot easier when the team wins football matches and is in the Champions League and buys players and all of that kind of thing. Of course it does. But it is unusual. I mean, I can't really think of any any other ownership group that has fluctuated so significantly in terms of going from... I, I don't think owners should ever be popular. You know, I think it should always be a kind of a challenging friendship at, at best, which is probably what Arsenal fans now have with the owners. I mean, you can imagine it probably wouldn't take something too dramatic for those opinions to fluctuate again, right? But it is a credit to them in that they clearly felt the way that they had been operating wasn't right and they were prepared to make changes and they were prepared to listen in some respects. I mean, they are pretty... Anyone who knows anything about their time operating in, in the US will know they can be pretty, stu- pretty stubborn, right, for better and worse. So to actually acknowledge that things needed to be done differently at Arsenal, I think is a credit to them. Yeah, and I think their own narrative is kind of that that 2018 moment where they took 100% control of the club was of critical importance. I think, you know, opinions kind of vary on the degree to which people buy into that idea. But it appears to me, at least, to be quite sort of borne out. You know, they didn't effectively want to invest in something that they felt they might not ultimately have complete control of. And since they have had it, uh, the investment has been pretty consistent, pretty steady and, and pretty significant. And I think that's where it all comes from. You know, we say it's easy when the team wins, but the team wins because they, they buy good players, you know, and that's what they've done a lot more of of late. But but can you imagine if if that hadn't happened and you still had the situation where Usmanov was 
had a significant stake in the club. And then the Russia war had happened and everything we've seen that's been going on with Everton over the last couple of years as well. Like, I mean, it, it could have really sort of, it's a real kind of sliding doors moment when you think back to actually how long that took to happen and then how sort of sudden what happened next was with just regard, well, with regards to the way the world is. Absolutely. Yeah, sliding doors is, is the right way to put it. And, you know, it was a it's a really interesting time in Arsenal's history, but they were kind of the club was quite locked essentially. We were sort of in stasis, and it, it was not just in the boardroom. You know, Arsene Wenger kept picking up those renewals, and well, can, can I can I give, like, give you a counterfactual? What if Wenger had stayed 2017, and then you have the full Kronka takeover? What do you? How different do you think it might have ended for Wenger? That is a very good question. I still think that with the way that football has evolved, I think that from a coaching perspective, and Arsenal fans will consider this heresy, I'm sure, I think he may have found it difficult still. I just think that the way the game has gone... He was washed. He was a washed fraud, Adam, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, Listen, you won't find many bigger admirers of Arsene Wenger than me, but I think most managers, maybe Sir Alex Ferguson is is the one exception, have their time. And I think Arsene Wenger absolutely had his time. I'm not sure that 2018 onwards would have been it. I think you're spot on. I'm just also conscious that we that it's a sort of a tale of two American owners here. We've got a Man United fan on one side, we've got an Arsenal fan on the other. Um, <laughs> nice little uh, green from you, Adam. But realistically, I think something they can be credited for, whether it's you know, from their perspective or not, is creating that element of a, you know, I guess a bit more of a synergy with the fans. You know, um, you, you, you remember the Unai Emery years in many respects. I know the, the Cronkey out years as well, um, at Arsenal. That synergy has been important though, um, to create a wonderful atmosphere in the stadium, which is also reflected on the field, Adam, um, in comparison to, I guess, let's say the Glaziers, where Man United fans sort of don't feel part of that conversation. Maybe. I, I think. I think the the biggest reason for the synergy between Arsenal as a team and and the fans is the fact there's a lot of young players out there. There's a manager that they knew as a player and that they like as a coach. They like the energy that he brings and they like the football. And actually, if you'd have gone to Old Trafford, you know, when Man United beat Barcelona in the Europa League last season, you'd have seen something pretty similar, right? The reality is when... Big teams win. The energy in the stadium is fantastic. When big teams consistently lose, the energy is pretty draining and and, and demoralising. And what you could say is it has been a, a, a joined-up strategy from the head coach, the sporting director, or whatever his, whatever I do his title is, and the owners, you know, to develop a young side. But equally, then I, I always think back to that kind of what felt like a slightly accidental game quite early in Arteta's Rain that three-one win over Chelsea on the Boxing Day, where you had Saka and Smith Rowe, and it kind of felt like a, a strategy that landed upon them, maybe that they then built on, rather than something that was there from the very, very start of the Arteta reign. Where I think it was more a case of let's just see how we go and try and sort out the whole mess. But but no, I mean the energy comes from the energy comes, I think, from young people and winning. And I am always struck as well by, you know, when I watch Arsenal games and Arsenal and Arsenal home matches, actually by the diversity in the stadium as well. Like you see that on the pitch with Arsenal, but you also see it, I think, in the stands 
more significantly than than I do at other clubs. And I think that I think that's also significant things. I mean that both in terms of uh, of women and ethnic minorities as well. It feels like when I watch Arsenal games that I'm seeing North London and in, in all its guys. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but that's what often comes through on the TV. It's the one thing I would say as an Arsenal fan that I feel like they've worked hard on or, or at least reflect hugely is that and I think obviously the Wenger years were pivotal to that sort of the African players that came into Arsenal um, and I think there was a, a collective even if you look the country I was born in Nigeria the swathes of Nigerian fans that took on Arsenal because of Kanu and uh, Thierry Henry I mean it, the, the list goes on really and I think definitely whether it's a marketing thing or whether it's a it's a strategic thing it does feel like that don't you think James? Yeah absolutely I think Arsenal have always had I have always, for a long time, have had quite a diverse fan base. It's partly geography. I think it's also a history and tradition of players, as you suggest, going right back to Brendan Batson, Viv Anderson. You know, if you think of, just take purely on an ethnic point of view, Arsenal are quite unique, maybe in the Premier League, and I'd say the, many of their most iconic players are black players. Ian Wright, Patrick Vieira, Thierry Henry, Bukayo Saka, so, so you know, whether that is something that engenders a certain support, I don't know. But I think the club have done well marrying up all aspects of things, you know, the men's team with the women's team. It's quite a united place. And I think credit to that has to go not only to the owners, but the people who are actually day-to-day running the club. It's been a big emphasis for them. Another aspect of kind of Arsenal's journey in recent years that just occurred to me that I thought might be worth mentioning is, and I think only in sort of, time to come will we truly be able to appreciate it but I think that Covid and the lockdown has its part in Arsenal getting to where they are now if I think back Mikel Arteta and Arsenal endured a truly dismal run in that initial period and I'm not sure it's a run that a manager could survive in a stadium full of fans because let me tell you the the reaction toxicity and the negativity online was something else and I saw what that stadium was like when Unai Emery wasn't winning games and Arsene Wenger wasn't winning games. And I think it would have been a very difficult environment for any young manager to come through. I actually think the absence of fans in stadiums partly allowed Arsenal to steer through it. And second to that, I think it almost allowed Arsenal to go through a kind of fallow year, you know, a kind of period in their recent history where they sort of went backwards to go forwards. And Adam mentioned that game against Chelsea, bringing in people like, uh, Smith Rowe, Saka, Martinelli, they were afforded a period of time where they were eighth effectively in the league, I think in consecutive seasons, to blood these young players and begin this project kind of from the ground up again. It hasn't been a straight line, Arsenal's progress. There's been a big dip. They've had to go back to go forward. And weirdly, I think, yeah, I think that absence of fans from stadiums may have been part of what enabled them to do that. Fantastic. Let's leave it there. James, Adam, thanks so much for your time. And don't forget, you can sign up to The Athletic today for a special limited time offer for just £1 a month for 12 months at theathletic.com forward slash football pod. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. To listen to other great athletic football podcasts for free, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places and head to theathletic.com slash football pod for the very latest subscription offers. The Athletic Football Podcast is an Athletic Media Company production. 
The Athletic.